At a time when our conversations are as polarized as they've ever been, sound ideas and reasonable perspectives get lost in the shuffle. Well, we can't afford to lose our voice. I'm Chicago Urban League President and CEO Sherry Runner, and if you aren't at the table, you're on the menu. Welcome to our conversations on culture, race, and equity. It's time you had a seat at the table, pull up a chair. Your host, Domiti Pongo. All right, you're listening to Culture, Race, and Equity. This is a Chicago Urban League podcast, and this interview is a special treat of mine because I get to talk to our state's attorney, Kim Fox. How you doing? I'm good. I'm T. Thank you. Thank you. Now, now I've got to open up with this, and you gave me permission to tell this story <laughs> uh, because the last time I had an opportunity or potentially had an opportunity to interview Kim Fox, it was uh, you were walking down a corridor, and you were about to give a speech. It was election night, uh, 2016. We were at the Hillary Clinton election night party. And uh, what was the speech you were giving that night? Uh, it was going to be my victory speech. Um, I had won the general election and was preparing to address the crowd uh, prior to the results coming in for the presidential race. Yes, and uh, <laughs> I happened to catch her in the hallway. While I was in the hallway, I was on the phone with WVON doing a live hit. Mm-hmm. So I'm reporting on what I'm seeing. I was talking about, I was like, oh, Kim Fox is right here. And I was like, you know, uh, Mrs. Fox, you know, would you mind giving the word to WVON? She's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't. And I was like, well, yeah, she's on the way to speak, etc. To me, it was fine, but Kim was so <laughs> so felt so bad that she you felt like you snubbed me but you I, didn't though. I listen I felt horrible because you know I know how hard you were working and hustling and it was a big night and I would never walk past you if I if I had not had to give that acceptance speech at that moment and so I had promised you um, that whenever you needed me I would be here so it is an honor really to be here with you today and she kept the promise and and, and I, I appreciate it so of much of course now um it's been a year, yeah. about a year or so that you've been in this seat. So how has the first year been? Uh, the first year has been exhilarating. Um, it's been tumultuous. It's been sure. uh, really a, a learning experience for me as a leader. Um, and at the same time, it's been exciting because we've been able to do some really innovative things with this office and really work on changing the perception of the state attorney's office with the communities we serve. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest pain points as far as getting started? Because, as you know, as as the groundswell of support for yeah. uh, state's attorney Fox came out of the Laquan McDonald okay. case, really unfortunate case. And, uh, you know, activists have a lot riding on you, right. you sitting in the seat. But yeah. at the same time, the reality of being in the job sometimes doesn't square away right. with what communities may want. So what has been some of the biggest pain points? Yeah, I think that's I think you hit the nail on the head. I think we come into a criminal justice system that has been, you know, a century plus in the making, right? Mm -hmm. And the brokenness that we've seen, um, not just as it relates to police accountability, but when we talk about mass incarceration, when we talk about the devastation and violence takes on our communities, was this expectation that coming in the door, that one person, day one, can change institutions. And so managing an organization as large as we are, we have about 1,200 employees. We have attorneys about 800 attorneys who are spread throughout the county and getting a grasp of who are we, what do we have, what are we doing, what is our culture, what is our expectation, what's our mission, mm-hmm. and getting everybody on board, um, as I said you know, when we were off the mic, is more than a notion. And so trying to align the mission of the organization with the realities of our criminal justice system as it existed, I think was one of the biggest struggles that we had and will quite frankly continue to have 
um, because doing such big change of an institution um, takes time, and managing that expectation with the public um, is a challenge. We'll talk about some wins first. Um, In Illinois, we saw what might have been the biggest mass exoneration in history, 15 inmates uh, released from from Cook County prisons. Talk more about that. What what happened? Yeah. So we one of the things that we wanted to do was acknowledge that we have to, in addition to fighting, you know, the issues of violence and crime that are happening now, is acknowledge where the system has failed in the past. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, it meant investing in a conviction integrity unit um, that looked at old convictions where there may have been actual innocence. And so we brought on a new head of that unit, Mark Rodert, who is an experienced prosecutor and defense attorney, uh, to come in and lead that team. And what we did was we looked at a number of cases. You know, the mass uh, exoneration from a few weeks ago was the biggest. Obviously, we had 15 men with 18 convictions um, who we vacated those convictions based on a thorough review of uh, patterns and practices by the the team, the law enforcement team that process, or arrested them um, and said that we have to make this right. Um, but a few months earlier, you know, there was a case of Adam Gray, who was 15 years old when he went into prison for an arson that he didn't commit mm. um, and spent 20 years in prison based on false science. Uh, there's the case, obviously, of Arthur Brown, who the same week that we did the mass exoneration had spent 29 years in prison uh, for an arson that he didn't commit. Mm. And being willing to say, look, the system failed. The system messed up here. And we have to write it. Like our obligation is when someone is wrongfully convicted um, to make that right. And so those have been some of our biggest victories in conviction integrity. Sadly, um, there's much, much more uh, to do in that vein. The fact that just this year alone that we've had about 24 convictions that have been vacated in my first year, that's like two a month, uh, is heartbreaking uh, Mm. that the system has failed um, these men in the past. So what happens to Sergeant Ronald Watts, who is the officer who perpetrated, who framed all of these suspects? So Sergeant Watts had gone to prison a few years ago, which is how these cases came to everyone's attention, um, for some illegal activity and shaking down uh, folks as part of his job over in the Ida B. Wells projects. And so the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuted Sergeant Watts. Um, so the his... His punishment has been meted out. Um, We are now looking, obviously, at those who may have been a part of that. Um, And I can't comment on what the nature of that investigation looks like. But certainly, we want to make sure that anybody who's been engaged in wrongdoing is held accountable. Why is it so – this is somewhat of an elementary question. But why is it so difficult to penalize officers when these things happen? I mean, Marco Pruano, uh, an officer who I believe shot another uh, police officer. He's just been uh, sentenced to five years yeah. um, uh, for incapacitating this officer. He didn't kill him, but he, you know, the guy has some damage to him that will never, yeah. he'll never be the same. And um, as I look at cases like that, you know, you start to I try to stay away as a reporter from hyperbole by yeah. saying that this is the first time that is yeah. ever, but it, it is the first time in recent history that an officer has been sentenced and correct me if I'm wrong for an, uh, 
an on-duty shooting. That's right. And why is it so difficult to uh, convict officers? You know, the the laws make it difficult, right? And I, I think this is also part of the education campaign that we have to have with the public is that the laws allow um, for law enforcement officials to exercise, you know, certain uses of force, right, um, if they believe that their life is in danger. And that element, like, did, did do you believe that your life is in danger is a question um, that if you put before a juror on cases that take seconds, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these things don't happen in slow motion. People are making decisions in seconds. Also, when they give statements, you know, there are rules in play um, that statements that law enforcement officials give after a shooting, for example, um, that they are compelled to give as part of an administrative hearing, we are not allowed to use in a criminal capacity, Mm. Right. Um, they have protections for that. So somebody may say something as part of whether or not they're going to be fired. And we're like, hey, I want to use that in my criminal case. And I'm barred from doing that. So there are a lot of technical pieces to um, prosecuting these types of cases that really makes it very difficult um, to charge officers on on duty shootings. Now, we did charge an officer earlier this year um, in the Amtrak a shooting where a young man was here on his way home from a wedding down south on his way to Minnesota uh, who was stopped by an Amtrak officer um, for what he believed to be smoking marijuana uh, near the area. Um, this man takes off while they're trying to do a pat down and he's shot in the back. Uh, we were able through these videos and witnesses and the like to determine um, that this was not only an unjustified shooting um, but a case that we believe we can meet the burden for first degree murder and we charged that case. In the case of uh, officers being or, or courts being unable to use officer testimony that those police reports that happened right after the shooting, is that a function of what's been negotiated in police union contracts or is that state law? Well, there's a couple of things. So you can use like written reports um, in criminal proceedings. What I'm talking about is, is the testimony that the officer gives that interview the, that they have to give. Right. That interview that they have to give. Right. As part of an administrative hearing. Like, am Got I going to suspend you? Am I going to. Does this affect your job? Not the criminal piece. Um, we can't use that. Got right. It. Because it's compelled. Right. Someone is forced to do that. And you have a right against self-incrimination. But if it's choose your job versus incrimination and someone says this is about my job, we in the criminal courts can't use that. That's under a law called. Um, Garrity, right? It's the Supreme Court rules that says that we have to do that. Um, but as far as police reports, now you do have an obligation to truthfully um, write down, you know, what happened on police reports. Um, some of the things that have been negotiated is, you know, you do a report, but you see a video later, um, and you are correcting what you've seen based on the video that you've seen later. Some of those types of practices have been protected by uh, union contracts. What does the, the state's attorney's office take then? Does that make it more difficult for you guys to mete out justice in those cases? I think it makes it very difficult. Uh, again, because you're looking at a number of factors. One, the decisions, like I said, to use force are being made in a matter of seconds. Yeah. Two, um, statements that are being given about how that decision were made, um, we are sometimes not allowed to use. We're not allowed to, to, to do that. Um, three, again, as technology improves, that helps uh, cases, whether it's body cams or phones or uh, mounted cameras, helps. Uh, but these are very difficult cases. And what you've seen across the country, um, even if you get these cases charged, the ability to get a conviction um, is heartbreakingly low. Yeah. Have you had to appoint a special prosecutor in any cases so far in this first year? 
we have not. We are currently, I think there's some cases that they are looking at now um, that I can't get into um, sure. on the record because those cases are still being um, investigated. Sure. Uh, but we have asked in cases that where we have looked and said we don't believe that we can meet our burden for them to take a look at our work, for them to take a look at our work. Let's pivot a bit. We, we talked uh, off air, you explaining the difference between um, the civil arm of the state's yeah. attorney's office and how uh, you guys are able to file lawsuits in, in cases that I would think that the Illinois attorney general yeah. might file a lawsuit. Uh, news came out today as of the day of this recording of this interview um, about the state's attorney office partnering with the city of Chicago to file a lawsuit against Uber. Talk about that a bit. Sure. Uh, just for quick context. So the state's attorney's office is the lawyer um, for Cook County, for, for the governmental entity of Cook County. So people know that Chicago has Chicago Corporation Council. We are essentially the Corporation Council for the county. And it's important because most people don't know that we do that that part of the work. Cook County is the second largest county in the country. Um, and so we represent a 5.4 million people um, in their interests civilly. And that's everything from torts if you get hurt uh, on county property, workers' compensation claims, civil rights violations at the jails, um, all of it. We are the lawyers for them. Um, and we also prosecute consumer fraud cases. And so in the case of Uber, Uber um, is alleged uh, to have had a security breach uh, about a year ago in November of 2016 um, and didn't say anything about it. Now, there's an obligation that when these types of breaches where people's personal information is made available um, at scale, that corporations have to tell the public that this happened. Um, and Uber didn't do that. Not only did they not do that, they had been hacked. They paid off the hackers um, to keep it quiet. And so we believe uh, that that putting our consumers in Cook County at risk um, and Uber's uh, negligence in that and their their they're hiding the fact of, of that, they have to be held to account. And so using our civil arm, uh, we have filed suit um, in civil court here in the Chancery Division of Cook County on behalf of the people of Illinois. Have any other principalities done that? Municipalities, I mean, done that? Uh, so far, Chicago and Cook County are the only municipalities that have done that. Now, when I think about that, I'm thinking about uh, suits where, where the uh, Attorney General's office kind of... Um, your roles kind of intersect, and yeah. I, you know, to pivot back as we talk about police reform, I'm thinking about the idea of a consent decree mm -hmm. uh, coming to the state of Illinois or a city of Chicago, rather. The Department of Justice found that Chicago engaged the pattern and practice of mm -hmm. these discriminatory actions. Um, what is the state's attorney's office role in uh, ensuring that that those things get corrected? As you talk about dealing yeah. with this history of. Uh, Certainly. So the attorney general filed a suit uh, for that consent decree and to have a special federal monitor appointed to that. And so we were not a part of that litigation. Um, we are certainly in support of a consent decree. We are certainly in support of having reforms being institutionalized um, and monitored to make sure that that what needs to be done is done. Uh, Cook County is, has a long history with consent decrees. The jail, for example, had been under a federal consent decree for a number of years mm -hmm. regarding overcrowding and civil rights uh, conditions there. And we've seen what can happen when you have that outside element ensuring that you do what is necessary. And so we certainly will be um, 
willing to help um, in any way possible uh, with uh, the monitor and whatever actions that they ask us to take uh, to ensure that these reforms are permanent. Now, the other thing that makes it difficult in policing a lot of these these neighborhoods, uh, and, and the argument has been made by the police department, well, they engage with citizens in, in some of these impoverished communities so often, and that's why you have a higher likelihood of these types of things mm-hmm. happening. You know, if you're in Inglewood and you engage young black men in, in, in these types of activities, you're going to have sometimes when, when things happen, yeah. you know, uh, that, that has been at least the argument that the police officers make. And so as I think about that, I want to take a broader look at what makes Inglewood Inglewood, what makes Lawndale Lawndale, what are some of these conditions that lead to inequities, that lead to yeah. poverty in some of this, the areas that we've seen across the city. And you're from Cabrini, Cabrini Green. Right. So, you know, it, I'm from the yeah. South Side. It's the same thing it's that same. we've seen yeah. uh, growing up. So w- what are some of these some of these things that we can tackle that may be out of the realm That's of right. what the state's attorney can do, but that we can address crime in our communities? You know, I'm glad you asked that because I think what happens is, is that we look to the criminal justice system to fix issues uh, related to violence that we can only respond to, right? It's very reactionary. Um, what we see in a lot of these neighborhoods, let me start with, you know, having grown up in Cabrini, having had relatives um, who have lived in Inglewood, what we know is that they are rich in, like, love and family and affirmation of what's possible for, for the people who yeah. live there. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here as a child of Cabrini. Um, there are families and people who have the same dreams and hopes for their children as people who live in areas that are not as impoverished. What they do have, however, is high unemployment, um, and and that matters. You know, economic stability, economic investment, the ability for one to provide for themselves or their families is critical, right? If you can't get a job um, and you still need to pay rent, you need to provide diapers, you need to provide um, car fare to get around, um, either you're going to do it in the legal economy or the illegal economy. And so with, in a lot of these neighborhoods, you see high concentrations of unemployment. You see some of our most underfunded schools, right? Mm-hmm. You also see where we have these des- deserts, you know, whether it's food deserts um, or healthcare deserts, where people are dealing with mental health or addiction issues, that we have young people dealing with trauma, and we don't have the resources in their communities to deal with them. And so a lot of these external deficits, right, feed into where we see increases in violence. And if we believe that the only way to deal with violence is prisons and jails and don't do anything about economic investment and we don't do anything about public health and we don't do anything about mental health and trauma, um, we will continue to see neighborhoods be devastated. If you look at neighborhoods where we have a high population of people who come out of prison, right? Let's let's look at Austin, for example, Mm -hmm. and the amount of money that we've spent on incarceration, right? And you think, you know... $20 $20 million, what would happen if you continue to build along the Madison Corridor and allow people who lived in those neighborhoods to work um, in businesses that are there? How much more we would get on our return on investment? But we've become so conditioned to believe that the only way we deal with violence is with jails, uh, that we've let people off the hook for the total disinvestment and the policies, whether it's redlining policies, segregation policies, economic policies, um, that have really devastated these neighborhoods. It's true. And one, one of the most difficult things about that, though, is it, it seems like such a big thing to tackle because you, yeah. you named a few different prongs from economic investment to mental health. As a result, we see fewer mental health That's clinics right. in these communities. 
And uh, $95 million just, uh, you know, uh, signed off on by the Chicago yeah. uh, City Council to build another training facility for police officers. Right. So it seems like it seems counter to it, counterproductive to what we're talking about as far as ways to really deal with the inequities in these communities. But I think we I think part of it has been we we really be letting people off the hook with the conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. So even in all the noise about what's happening with violence and we are in this period of increased violence, even though 2016 will be less violent than 2017, it's still some of the highest numbers that we've seen in 20 years. And the response is so short sighted. Yeah. Right. It's so sh- like, what law can we change in Springfield around penalties? Right. And it's like, that's not going to get it. If we are, and I said this a year ago, because I think we just celebrated the one-year anniversary of the Whole Foods in Inglewood. Yes, yes. And it is continues to stun me that everybody is, like, clapping and we celebrate, like, Inglewood one year ago uh, or one year later with the Whole Foods. And you go on some neighborhoods on, on the north side and you got a Whole Foods, a Mariano's, and a jewel within two blocks of each other. Like we celebrate the fact that we can get fresh fruits and vegetables. Like we don't deserve more than that. And I think the conversation around violence and we, we in our communities, because we are afraid want a quick fix, but I believe we can talk, walk and chew gum at the same time. I think that education advocates can still say we need better education for our children. A stronger education leads to decreased violence. Housing our proponents can say we need affordable housing so that we can have um, less segregation in some of these neighborhoods um, and gentrifying and pushing people out versus making opportunity able for everybody decreases violence. Mental health treatment um, and access to treatment decreases violence. If we had a real conversation, because yes, it is a lot, but there are people who do that work every day. There are people in all of those lanes who do that work. If we collectively said, what is our strategy? What is our plan to decrease violence that is not just jails? Right. How do we work together? How do I work with CPS? How do I work with the public health system? How do we come together and say, what is our plan to decrease violence? Otherwise, people will be let off the hook. And the 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 pressure point will be law enforcement. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the, the point about gentrification, too, as we talk about Whole yeah. Foods and such. Uh, when I think about what the Obama library can do, yeah. uh, for example, for the south side of Chicago, or when I thought even people were protesting Whole Foods in some, in some cases, <laughs> yeah. some people were worried that yeah. that meant, my goodness, my neighborhood is about to change. Yeah. I won't be allowed to partake in this growth. Yeah. So how do we balance yeah. the fact that even Cabrini Green looks much different? Hey. Than it used to back You in probably the day. heard me complaining every, because I think there's a way to do it and then there's a way not to do yeah, it. Because, you know, Cabrini, where I live, there's a Target, like literally on the land that I live, lived in. And right around the corner on uh, Larrabee, not too far off of Division, I'm sorry, on um, of Halstead, is a, uh, an indoor skydiving <laughs> place. It boggles the mind, right? And they have some mixed, you know, uh, affordable housing over there, but the numbers are small. Mm. Um, and so when you look at that, I think that is kind of the the epitome of, like, gentrification gone wrong, mm. right? Where you do have neighborhoods that, you know, we're not talking about a coffee shop. We're talking about in a place where people can pretend 
to be jumping out of planes in a building <laughs> on land that when I lived there, when my grandmother lived there, we had nothing. And so it's hard. I, that fear is real. That yeah. fear of what can become is real when you look at Cabrini. But I think we have to be mindful. I think coming to the table and saying, what is the impact that, that this is going to have? How are you going to ensure that the people who are the fabric of this neighborhood continue to, to grow and thrive here? How do we not push people out? How do we make sure that they are a part of building the legacy is 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 critical. I think those conversations are critical. But the fear that a lot of people are rooted in is is real. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a history in the, in this city. But I don't think that we thwart progress out of fear. Right. I don't think that we shoot ourselves in the foot um, because we are afraid of what the future looks like. I think we have to be a part of the solution. I like to end every podcast with a question about what is something that a person can do today to affect change in their communities. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, we've interviewed some of these people. They're working in so many different areas from mental health. You got education advocates. You have people fighting against redlining. Okay. You have people talking about economic investment. Um, what is something that folks can do today to affect what we see in our communities as it relates to battling back some of the inequities that we have seen time and time over yeah. decades that has kind of compounded and resulted yeah. in what we see? I say to people all the time, get in where you fit in, right? Like, you don't have to be an elected official. Um, you know, I, I am privileged to ha- hold this spot. But I'm also always in awe of people who have decided for their own block that they're going to do something, right? When I look at Diane Latiker uh, with Kids Off the Block, like, she started that in her house because she felt that she needed to do something. Um, whether that's, for me, people who mentored me along the way, or whether it's showing up at the local school council meeting, whether it's showing up, you know, at the Board of Education meeting, uh, whether it's, like, writing your alderman or your congressman about mental health services. I think there is a space for wherever you you meet people where they are. Some people aren't eloquent speakers, but they're tremendous writers. Some people are, you know, got money to to burn on the next whatever they want to burn it on, who can write a check to a non-for-profit that is engaged in community. I mean, I think that there's a space for everybody to do things. Uh, and there's a, there's a plethora, and particularly in the nonprofit space. I think those organizations um, need people in communities to be invested in them as they invest in the neighborhoods they serve. And, uh, and I lied. I have one more question. Okay. As I think about it, with the state's attorney's office, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what uh, both activist communities, uh, people in the activist community can do and, um, and media play. Yeah. Media, people in the media, too, can do uh, to better share information about how things are happening with different cases. Like we talked about Laquan McDonald. Yeah. And I neglected to ask about, uh, you know, the Jason Van Dyke trial. It's yeah. been prolonged, prolonged, yeah. prolonged. Uh, and throughout this process, people get restless right. and it doesn't endear trust from community right. members. So what can all partners from the state's attorney's yeah. office to the media to activist group do better to learn more about what goes into these cases That's and right. hold uh, the state's attorney's office accountable That's to right. make sure that justice is meted out? No, I think that's a great question. One of the things that we did, and I re- realized this when I was campaigning, p- 
this stuff is confusing, right? I went to law school, and so the stuff that we were talking about around Garrity, the ability to use compelled statements or not use compelled statements, or what is a criminal case versus what IPRA does or what COPA does, people don't know. And so I have an obligation um, to educate about what we do and how we do it. What I ask for the activist community, too, is that you have an obligation, too, to also be informed, right, to also know how this works. Because the media, and in no slight to you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they operate in sound bites, right? Yes. They operate in, you know, quick snippets. And what I know about the law, what I know about this particular area of law, it is complicated. And if we have an obligation to speak truth, um, we have to tell it in its full complexity yeah. and not just, you know, for soundbite purposes. Yeah. And I think there can't be an arrogance you know, in my office where it's like, I know better. So you just have to believe what I say is right. I have an obligation to educate, to teach, to demonstrate, um, and to be transparent. You know, it's one of the reasons that we, you know, release so much data. We issued the first data report this office ever did because the public has a right to know what I do. And for activists, it is be educated, like know what the process is. So you know where to push. So you know where to ask you know, the question. So you know where the accountability lies. Um, to condemn the whole system and not know what some of the restraints may be does a disservice to people who listen to you, who you are a validator for. Um, so I think that's important. And for the media, I think they have to own that the narratives that they tell resonate. The narratives that they, that they tell about what it means to come from Inglewood, what it means to to be a young black man who wears saggy pants, um, is 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 generates something to somebody else. Yes. I know men who wear saggy pants, um, and in my own family, loving devoted fathers. Um, but if people only knew them from what they saw on TV. Um, and you don't have that diversity in your newsrooms to say don't put that out there, that resonates with how the general public sees us. And so I would say to all of us, public officials, activists, the media, we have to honor the weight of the responsibility that we have um, in telling the stories and doing the work Um, because people are counting on us to be honest. Like truth to power goes all the way around. Um, And we have to issue the simple story. We have to issue the simple narrative. Everybody's bad. Everybody's good. Um, Black people bad. White people good. Um, Criminals bad. Lawyers good. We have to stop that. Right. right? And, and, And speak truth, however complicated it is. That's why I appreciate you joining this project so much because, you know, to go from 15 to 30 second sound bites to have 30 minutes to actually talk to <laughs> yeah. you. And even as I talked about the Garrity issue, as you said, it's, it's true. When when you're writing the media story, those are the, the, the nuances yeah. that you have to get right so that the listener, even if you know it, you can use that word Garrity. If the listener doesn't know what they're talking about, it affects the way the public is informed. And it's that's so right. important that we uh, elevate voices in a way that's responsible and, and equitable. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining you. Culture, Race, and Equity, State's Attorney Kim Fox. Thank you so much, Namati. I'm very proud of the work you all are doing. Thank you for checking out a segment from our 10-part series, Culture, Race, and Equity, A Seat at the Table. We invite you to view our show notes at culpodcast.com. And please don't forget to rate us and leave your comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch and find out how you can support the League, visit our website at thechicagourbanleague.org. 
I'm President and CEO Sherry Runner. See you next Monday.